The case is submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 897370, Moj Goslin Paris versus United States. Goldberg, you may proceed whenever you're. There will be silence in the court. Except from the advocate. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. This case involves the interplay between two lines of federal criminal statutes enacted over the past six years. One line involves sentencing reform. The other group of laws reflects the desire of Congress to toughen drug penalties. The judgment below required imposition of a term of supervised release for an offense committed before November 1987. Only by reversing that judgment can all of the statutes involved here, which were certainly meant to work together, be reconciled. In 1984, after lengthy and thorough deliberation, Congress enacted a scheme of federal sentencing reform, a comprehensive scheme that included the abolition of parole, and also to be abolished was that special form of extended parole applicable only to certain controlled substances cases called special parole, which was, in 1984, the Sentencing Reform Act instead created a new kind of post-incarceration supervision to be called supervised release, which was carefully defined and circumscribed in detailed provisions of that 1984 statute. Congress realized at that time that to prepare the federal criminal justice system to make the change to this entirely new sentencing system would take time. And that 1984 statute thus initially set a startup period of two years, in fact, over two years for the new system before it would become effective. Congress soon realized that it would, that two years would not be long enough and extended that period for another year with the resulting effective date for supervised release and all other new aspects of the sentencing system of November 1, 1987. Meanwhile, on October 27, 1986, the President signed into law the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which made a number of changes in federal drug sentencing, especially in the higher volume offenses. This 1986 statute used the term supervised release without giving any definition for that term. In some of its provisions, including Section 1002 of that statute, which is the statute involved in this case under which my client was sentenced, the petitioner here was convicted for some of these higher volume heroin offenses involving conduct which occurred in February 1987, which was, of course, after enactment of that 86 Drug Act on October 27th of 86, but before the effective date of the Sentencing Reform Act on November 1, 87. Now, under the law, there's one more piece of background that's, that's needed. Under the law, as existed from 1984 until the effective date of supervised release under the 86 Anti-Drug Act, persons convicted of the same offenses as the petitioner here would have been subject to ordinary parole, but no other supplemental post-confinement supervision or monitoring. For example, in this case, the petitioner has an aggregate sentence of 20 years, of which he is likely to serve about 10 in prison, and then to serve the remaining 10 years on parole, ordinary pre-Sentencing Reform Act parole. 
If supervised release applies, this would be in addition to the petitioner's ordinary parole. And, of course, since he serves 10 years uh, minimum, uh, at the time that he is released, uh, all of the supervised release provisions that Congress enacted in 84 and in 86 will be in effect. In one sense... As of the time that... uh, it is necessary to implement this scheme, the statute will be fully effective by its own terms. In one sense, Justice Kennedy, that's true, but in another it's not. And that's because Congress provided in the effective date provisions of the 84 Act, which govern and control and include the supervised release implementation and definitional provisions, that not only would it have an effective date of, of November 1, 1987, but also that it should not apply to any offense committed before that date. I think the language of the statute is shall only apply to offenses committed after the taking effect of the statute. So that Section 3583, which is the supervised release provision of the Sentencing Reform Act, by by the terms of its own effective date provision, can never apply to my client's case or to the other uh, people who committed offenses between October 86 and November 187. That was Congress's specific uh, declaration on that subject. So the suggestion that the case is, un- is not significant because, after all, by the time he finishes serving the 10-year imprisonment portion of his sentence, we'll have a system in place. It's true there'll be a system in place, but it won't be a system that applies to him by law. Well, it goes to the point of what Congress probably in- intended. Well, and if, if you're saying uh, that we can't know what supervised release means because it's an empty term without implementing provisions? There are a couple of answers. One is that the implementing provisions are on the books. They're not in force yet. Uh, the other is that the implementing provisions uh, won't, won't be needed uh, so far as uh, effecting the supervised release until they're fully effective. Well, not only are they not applicable, and, and of course when we look for congressional intent, the first thing to look at is the language which specifically addresses the question. The language which addresses that question is language which says that those implementing provisions do not apply to an offense committed at the time my client committed his offenses. Wasn't, but there's another wasn't this just a mistake as, as indicated by a later, later amendment that sought to plug the hole? Well, there have been contentions in this case that several aspects of, of what are involved here have been mistakes. I know. But it, it, and it, it poses intriguing problems. You, you, th- you think it was all deliberate? You, you don't think that there was some... Well, in the subjective sense, do I think that Congress intended to put me in this position? Right. I, no. And us, too. And especially you. Uh, no, I don't think it was deliberate in that sense. But, but there are rules. I don't think there was a member of Congress that... that knew at the moment that the, that the vote was taken on the conference committee report that contained the language supervised release, I'd be surprised if there was a member of Congress that, that had fully thought through all of this. But that's not where we look to, for the meaning of a statute. We have rules to apply for this sort of situation. And the rule is we look to the language, and if the language doesn't answer it, then to well, any Well, I thought one rule was that statutes normally take effect on the date of their enactment, and Section 1002 doesn't contain the language you point to. Why, why didn't that become effective immediately? It, that, the, the requirement, the, uh, excuse me, the axiom of construction that a statute is deemed to become effective immediately if it doesn't provide otherwise is not a rule. 
Justice O'Connor, it's an axiom of construction like any other. If it were a rule, then none of the well, other matters discussed in the Why don't we apply the axiom of construction then and okay. say 1002 became effective immediately on enactment? Because there is such a wealth of other reasons not to. And it takes something to overcome that axiom, but I would suggest that we've prevent, presented those kinds of points. And they fall into basically into three categories. First, that to put uh, 1002 and especially its supervised release provisions into effect immediately is to create a set of some half dozen inconsistencies, contradictions, and, and complete nullifications of related provisions of the statute uh, that are not there if you treat the statute as effective on November 1, 1987. The second uh, area of, of, uh, of analysis that overcomes the, the presumptive axiom is the in pari materia approach, which says that we have to view the supervised release phrase, otherwise undefined, in 1002 in relation to all the other provisions dealing with supervised release, and all of them go into effect November 187. And third, finally, the rule of lenity. If this is a question worth talking about, if it's a question intelligent people could answer in two ways, and we can't come up with a clear, uh, settled, right answer, it's a criminal case. So that whatever uh, power that axiom has in civil cases perhaps to act as a trump doesn't exist in criminal cases Mr. because Goldberg, of the rule of lenity. Are you suggesting in response to Justice O'Connor's question that there are some things we call rules of statutory construction, other things we call axioms of statutory construction, that the two are different? No, I don't think so. Well, uh, perhaps the, <laughs> to, to read the language and attempt to apply it as written, that's a rule. Uh, but there's, I don't think it's fair, other than that and, and things in, of that category, I think it's fair to say that the rest of these doctrines in pari materia and uh, what to do with silence, what to, rules rule of, tell us of what to do with silence and ambiguity. The rule of lenity. And the rule of lenity are axioms, yes. And we call them rules only using that word loosely. That's right. Uh, the ambiguities and contradictions which would exist here, some of them are irreconcilable, and I think the government concedes this, that, that if we do not adopt the November 1, 1987 effective date, which may have been gotten to uh, originally inadvertently, but which we now is the, is the resolution of the problem that works. The resolution that works eliminates the problem of having several other statutory provisions, drug sentencing provisions, make cross-references that don't exist. It eliminates the problem of having uh, of Congress in November of 86 enacting a statute clarifying and correcting language uh, in the uh, drug sentencing law, which under the, the theory of the court below and, and advocated by the government here, uh, would have been repealed some weeks earlier, so that we would then have a, a nullity in the November 86 Technical Amendments Act. Uh, there are some half dozen of those, and they're all treated in the briefs, and it's, I don't think they, they fit well in, in an oral presentation, but... Now, Mr. They, Mr. Goldberg, yes. uh, Judge Becker's opinion for the Court of Appeals mentioned problems that that court saw with going your way. In the, in the future, and Judge Becker has devoted a great deal of time, of course, to probation and parole. Uh, do you have any response to his criticisms of, of your approach as to the future? What, what would ha inconsistencies that would happen further down the line? No. 
Perhaps I'm remembering a different part of the opinion, but I think what he was saying there, Mr. Chief Justice, is that the failure to have a uniform answer to this problem in all the circuits would create inconsistencies and problems down the line. But I don't think he suggested that having one clear answer either way would create problems and inconsistencies. And I would suggest that more problems and inconsistencies down the line are created by perpetuating parole and, and special parole for an additional year. And indeed, in the case, uh, as the government seems to argue in its brief at one point, uh, and as some of the circuits have, have, uh, have held, uh, to reintroduce it where it had not existed for two years earlier um, would create far more problems down the line by having a parole system which there was no agency to, uh, to administer. I understand uh, that just uh, this, this weekend, as Congress was wrapping up its business in the Judicial Improvements Act, it may have extended the life of the Parole Commission by another five years. Even to have extended it, if, if what I hear is right, that if, if it has been extended from 92 to 97, that still doesn't cover many of these cases um, that, that have 10-year uh, mandatory minimums or, or longer, and then under the, uh, the government's view, wind up with people, um, could wind up with people on, on parole. Uh, rather than um, simply waiting a year until the system can be implemented in a coherent way where supervised release applies, uh, we have a system to understand it and a, and a system to administer it. In fact, there was an additional part of the answer I wanted to give to Justice Kennedy's question, if I, if I could, um, and that was that is that the Sentencing Reform Act provides in that section which describes supervised release that important judgments about supervised release are to be made by the sentencing judge at the time of sentencing. In fact, these are uh, one of the most, this is one of the critical ways in which supervised release is fundamentally different from parole, is that it's to be de decided on its length, its conditions, um, by the sentencing judge at the time of sentencing. And that's not something that's going to occur 10 years in the future. That's something that had to occur uh, might have had to occur as early as the, the early winter of 1986. And Mr. Conditions are imposed at the time of sentence? Yes, sir. Under 3583, uh, subsection D. I thought that the, the period of supervised release for the category of offenders we're dealing with in this case was fixed by the statute. Uh, no, Justice Stevens, that's not correct. There is a minimum period fixed by the statute, but the oh, length above the minimum um, or, and the decision whether it's to be above the minimum is in the discretion of the judge and must be decided at the time of sentencing. I see. I don't mean to mislead. There are provisions, both in terms of your question, Justice Kennedy, and yours, Justice Stevens, to amend and modify both the conditions and the length later. But the initial decision is clearly uh, imposed uh, on the judge and by the judge at the time of sentence. And there is a variety of conditions that can be imposed in supervising? Yes, there are a few that are mandatory and the rest are in the judge's discretion. In addition to these um, anomalies uh, and mismatches that the uh, theory of the, of the lower court and of the government just can't explain away, and in fact the government's position is we'll worry about that in some other case, uh, I, I hope that's not the answer. I think that we, we have an opportunity here to answer the question in a way that doesn't require five more cases uh, to resolve. The, uh, the peri materia argument tells us that when a term is used in a statute that where no definition is given, and that definition clearly refers to another statute where that term was invented, the Sentencing Reform Act invented the concept of supervised release. It's not a, a, a term that criminal lawyers had a knowledge of before. 
that you have to uh, look to that other statute and, and bring it in. And then when that other statute... Um, Indeed, you, you couldn't look to the other statute until the other statute's effective. That's correct. Probably improbable until it's effective. Isn't it? I think that's right, Justice Scalia. Not only that, you couldn't look to it on, uh, in a case in which Congress had explicitly declared that it shall not apply. The um, perimateria uh, principle, I think, also goes to the internal interpretation of the 86 Act, so that not only do we have to cross-reference um, the, super, the special, the supervised release provisions of the Sentencing Reform Act, but also the, uh, the, 80, uh, the 86, November 86 Technical Act, but the other provisions internally of the 86 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, and that's where the perimateria argument runs into the contradiction argument. You wind up just with so many uh, provisions that, that don't work or wind up being, being utterly meaningless that, that it, you just can't have it that way and have a statute that makes sense. And if the intent of Congress, if we have a presumption that the intent of Congress is to make sense and not to be absurd, you have to lead in that direction. The legislative history doesn't help us on the intent of Congress in the sense of discussing the purpose of the change in language that occurred at that last moment of the amendment process from special parole to supervised release. Um, but it, and, and what it does tell us is Congress was in its usual end of October uh, situation. It wanted to pass a drug bill this year and, and, uh, and get it finished. And that there's no indication that there was a considered decision to change the concept of, of special parole, which had been provided in the bill before that, to supervised release, but also no indication um, that it was doing so for this reason as opposed to that reason. So we're in a, a pure an, uh, analysis of the statutory language and structure, um, which sends us to um, to the solution that, that I'm suggesting. Is the definition of supervised release plus all of the conditions upon it, is that in a section of the statute that does not take effect until after this? That's exactly right, Justice Scalia. That's so you wouldn't, even know, you wouldn't even know how to handle supervised relief without consulting a portion of the statute that's not yet in effect. That's right. The government's position is that, that courts could and no doubt did look to the statute, which, as I mentioned at the outset, had been enacted in 1984 and was, was there waiting to go into effect. But my response to that is that the statute, not only by its terms, wasn't effective, but was inapplicable. Are, are there any cases where, in the interpretation of statute, we use the doctrine of incorporation of reference that we do in wills, say? Because this, there, there was a body of extant statutory provisions that you could look to. They weren't in effect yet. You say these were just incorporated by reference? I suppose that's paramateria of a sort. Uh, I'm not familiar with any other, um, any other concept different from that, that when Congress uses a term that has a, me has a definition and a meaning, it it's, must be understood to be incorporating that definition and meaning. But in this case, and, I, and I, don't, I don't mean that we have to blind ourselves to the existence on the books of this as yet ineffective statute. What I mean is we, we do look to 3583, and we look to it, and we find that Congress has told us not to use it. And therefore, what we find is that we can't have the law, the 86 supervised release provisions at least, go into effect uh, before that uh, other statute is available for the purpose of making reference to it. As a, a final aid to statutory construction in the case, uh, I, I do rely on the rule of lenity. 
And I, this is not where we start. It's not something that we use to avoid uh, the rest of the problems and the issues. But it's a place that a defendant in a criminal case discussing a sentencing uh, provision that is ambiguous, it's amb- ambiguous by virtue of silence and by virtue of contradiction, is entitled to look. The court should not rely in making its decision in any way on an assumption that Congress intended to add new punishment, and that's what it would be in my client's case, new punishment of extended supervision uh, without a, uh, a clear indication that it intended to do so when there's another plausible interpretation. Mr. Do our cases extend the rule of lenity to the uh, extent of punishment as well as to the denomination of the substantive offense? Oh, yes, quite clearly so, uh, by Fulco being the most important case and, and in many ways the most similar to this one. Um, there's a case in which the court was dealing with the antecedent of supervised release, that is special parole, uh, an ambiguity by virtue of silence um, was found, and the court, uh, after careful analysis of the statutory language, cross-references, and purpose, finally uh, turned also to the rule of lenity. And, um, but didn't the statute specifically set a date and say that this shall take effect on October the 27th? No. There is no provision of that kind in the 86 Act. There is only — there are other — perhaps what you're thinking of is that there are other effective dates stated later than October 86 for certain specified provisions of the 86 Act and silence with respect to this provision. And that then many, many but a minority of the, of the lower courts have held invokes that, that rule of presumption that Justice O'Connor referred to it early on in the argument. Well, it does more than invoke that rule of presumption. It calls — Calls into play uh, another one of the uh, the maxims or rules that is inclusio unius exclusio alterius. Yes, that's right. By specifically specifying a date in some instances, you assume that where they don't specify it, the ordinary rule of today implies that, that that's probably the hardest uh, indication against your position, isn't it? Well, it's uh, it's an important argument that the other side has and. It would be surprising to me, though, if there were a difficult problem of statutory construction like this one in which you couldn't invoke some maxim in Latin on, on each side. Uh, my favorite one in this case is in peri materia. Theirs is expressio <laughs> unius. Uh, but, but there's more to say about, about it than that, and, which is that um, if the, the bill which provided for special uh, parole had remained in that form and had been enacted saying special parole rather than uh, supervised release. I think Expressio Aeneas would have won the day if someone had tried to make in that situation the argument that I'm making. It was by virtue of the substitution of terminology to, su- to uh, supervised release, to a term which, which, ex- which necessarily makes reference to another statute and which is meaningless without that other statute which would, in effect, be telling a judge, you may impose a sentence, you shall impose a sentence of something called supervised release, but of which we will not tell you the meaning. You can impose a sentence of, of your own design in this case. I think that's very problematic. Let me just, may I ask you one question to be sure I've got this sorted out? I mean, I, I don't begin to have it sorted out, but... The thrust of your argument is always focusing on supervised release, but if, if you are correct... Are you also arguing that uh, Section 1002 and Section 1003 simply did not go into effect at all until November 1st? There are arguments uh, to be made, and which we have made in our brief, 
and I'm not retreating from them, but they're not the arguments that I've made so far this morning. I understand, but, but it seems to me that, that if you carry the day on the supervised release, you must be saying that Section 1002 is not effect, was not effective until November 1, 1987. No, not necessarily. There are not all of the arguments I make are applicable to the rest of the section. There is not that uh, peri materia uh, argument of incorporating the uh, Sentencing Reform Act does not come into play for the, for the argument against the mandatory minimums and against the non-parolability. They are similar to and do evoke the new Sentencing Reform Act, but they are not utterly dependent on the Sentencing Reform Act in the well, way I understand, but earlier you made a, one of your arguments was that if we decide in your favor in this case, we'll avoid a whole bunch of other cases. It seems to me if we accept your view under the su on supervised release, we're next have to, going to have to decide what the rest of 1002 means and what 1003 means, whether that went into effect on November 1st or not. I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Well, if you accept my argument, you won't have to decide that because you will decide, as argued in, in point A2 of our brief, that, that the whole of 1002 didn't go into effect until November 1, 87. But if you go... That would also apply to 1003, I suppose, wouldn't it? Insofar as you rely on 1004 as setting forth the date and the whole scheme fits together and so forth. And 1032 and 1866, yeah. there are a number of sections of the statute that follow the same pattern, but that's... Uh, we it's not necessary, but there's no split in the circuits on that, on that point. I, of course, stand by the arguments we've made in the brief on that, but, they, but the whole argument does not stand or fall on that provision. I would like to reserve the rest of my time, if I may. Thank you, Mr. Goldberger. Ms. Wax? <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, let me try to summarize this case in four basic points. It is virtually an unimpeachable principle of legislation and one on which Congress relies every time it enacts a statute, that a statute goes into effect upon enactment unless it states otherwise. Axiom, as suggested by your opposition. Well, I don't want to get into a semantical battle, but what we mean by this perhaps is best explicated by what Chief Justice Rehnquist said in, in Albernez versus United States about the Blockburger rule. Silence on the Blockburger question and on the question of an effective date does not give rise to the kind of ambiguity that would license a broad-ranging foray into the statute looking for hints and clues that something else was intended, and it doesn't give rise to an occasion for application of the rule of lenity. Have we applied the rule of lenity to an effective date issue? Never, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. There has never been a case in this Court in which the Court has held that with silence on an effective date, a delayed effective date was intended. And in our, to our knowledge, there's never been a, court, a case in the Court of Appeals, and that should tell us something. Congress relies on this rule when it enacts a statute. It knows that putting in an express provision that the effective date is immediate is superfluous, and therefore it doesn't have to do that. And to question this axiom would invite statutory chaos because it would mean that every time Congress didn't stipulate an effective date, we'd be free to go into a statute and look for little anomalies, little problems, from which we might infer a contrary intent. Well, this isn't a little anomaly. It's the fact that you don't, you don't know what, what this term of art means. It's a brand new word that is utterly meaningless to anybody unless you consult another statute that isn't in effect yet. That, that is correct. The statute that 
describes what supervised release is, that gives it content, that gives content to the word, is not in effect during the, the pertinent period because under the 84 Sentencing Act, it was given an effective date. But it's our view that this is not an obstacle to applying the plain terms of the revised penalty provision, Section 841, which clearly state that supervised release is the appropriate penalty because the fact is that 3583, which describes what supervised release means, does exist. It's out there. It's on the books. Albeit, it doesn't have the force of law, and perhaps uh, a judge couldn't be held to the letter of it. Um, But it does give content to the notion of supervised release. And these supervised release penalties for this period from 86 to 87 are being applied daily in the Ninth Circuit, the Third Circuit, uh, now the Sixth Circuit in the wake of a case that came down a couple of months ago, uh, in the D.C. Circuit in the wake of United States v. Brundage. Judges are not going off on, on crazy tangents when they when they pass sentence on individuals who get supervised release. They're pretty much being guided by 3583, uh, and the system is working. Ms. Wax, if we go along with with the government's uh, suggestion here, it does result in some anomalies and some problems uh, in relation to other statutes, does it not? It does. There are some inconsistencies in the statute uh, as a result of the the provision for supervised release beginning in October of 1986. And would those problems be avoided by uh, the construction, uh, by the later effective date suggested by the petitioner? Your Honor, that it would avoid some of them, but it would create other problems and inconsistencies in its wake. For every problem, it it, it would avoid some of the the little uh, statutory inconsistencies, but it would pervert what Congress did when they passed this statute. First of all, uh, the thesis that the whole of Section 1002 was delayed for a year is a non-starter, because in the penalty provisions in 1986, Congress stipulated that there would be no parole under these penalty provisions, there were mandatory prison terms, and there simply would be no reason for Congress to state that there's no parole if the effective date was November 1st, 1987, because as of November 1st, 1987, parole was abolished. So that in itself definitively refutes the thesis that there was a delayed effective date for the whole of 1002, and if there is... That's just saying one statute was totally superfluous. That's not an inconsistency. Am I right? And as they abolished abolished parole, effective November 187, in two different ways, but totally consistent with one another. Right, but it would be superb. Because they abolished parole in 84, and the the abolition of parole was going to kick in. Right. They didn't need to do it again. But they they didn't didn't do anything inconsistent. Well, we're only saying that it would be a surplusage. Right. And we think that's an anomaly as much as the anomalies... Yeah, but it doesn't create any administrative anomalies or anything like that. It just says they unnecessarily did something, they unnecessarily abolished parole in two different statutes and had precisely the same consequence. Well, as, as a... It might be wise legislation in some circumstances to make 100% sure their meaning is clear. 
But if we're, if we're looking at these anomalies as a sign of what Congress intended to do, okay, I mean, basically, petitioner's argument is that by leaving these anom- by creating these anomalies, by, by allowing supervised release to kick in, Congress was sending us a message that it wanted to delay supervised release. And we're saying, well, there's contrary evidence that Congress was sending the message that it wanted the whole of 1002 to go into effect immediately. We're really making an argument about what Congress wanted, what Congress meant to have happen. Well, they're not saying they wanted to delay it. They're they're saying that they had previously delayed supervisory release in the earlier statute, and all they've done is said that this statute shall take effect at the same time as other supervised release provisions take. I don't see the inconsistency. Surely they could have drafted it better, but... Well, the other reason why we think that that the way to solve whatever anomalies there are is not to delay supervised release is that Congress clearly passed a provision that had mandatory monitoring in it. And we have to go a little bit into the history of this enactment in order to understand why that's important. Uh, every, the petitioner and we both agree that up until the penultimate moment when the 1986 Act was passed, the statute provided for mandatory monitoring in the form of special parole for all of the drug categories that apply to petitioner's offense. So it was crystal clear that Congress wanted these individuals to get a mandatory term of monitoring. The statute also provided that on November 1st, 1987, there was going to be a word substitution. Every place the special parole appeared in the statute, supervised release would now appear. And so people committing offenses after November 1st, 1987 would get supervised release. But, it, but in no way did that draft statute, the penultimate statute, create a gap whereby there would be a period that individuals committing these drug offenses would get nothing. On the eve of enactment, for reasons that we will never know, a substitution was made, a single word substitution. Every place that the term special parole appeared in the act, the word supervised release, it was crossed out and the word supervised release replaced it. The effect of that word substitution was simply to roll back one year the seamless transition from one kind of monitoring to another. The effect, it is, it's simply perverse to say that what Congress was doing when it substituted those words was opening up a year gap and sending the message that it wanted to delay the effective date of the statute either in whole or in part. This is especially true, as Justice Scalia pointed out, because Congress knew how to delay the effective date of parts of this statute. It did it in Section 1004, 1006, 1007, 1009. And for Congress to choose this coy, roundabout, ambiguous method to accomplish the same thing, it's just not a plausible account of what happened when Congress passed this statute. What happened is this. Someone decided that there was no reason to perpetuate what was soon to be an outmoded form of of monitoring. They might as well initiate supervised release a year early. But Congress forgot to make the the collateral changes that would have created a completely harmonious statute. But the fact that Congress forgot to do a few little things over here 
doesn't mean that what they did in the core penalty provisions, what they did at the center, wasn't intentional. It's and still, it still is a badly drafted statute, isn't it? Not the first one we've had here. Well, there, there are a few oversights which, which result in some inconsistencies. That, that we, we concede that, but we don't think it follows from that either that Congress intended to delay the effective date or that this court should, uh, should square the circle by delaying the effective date of the statute. Now, we, we point out in our brief that if the penultimate change had never been made and the statute was passed saying special parole instead of supervised release in all the places where the replacement was made, this would be a completely internally consistent and coherent statute. So the question arises, you know, why not just rewrite the statute and put special parole back where supervised release is? which, by the way, is very different from saying that the effective date of the whole or part of the statute is delayed, which has very different consequences. In particular, that petitioner won't get any monitoring. That would be the consequence of delaying it. But why not just substitute terms? Well, we think that the reason not to do that is that the statute says supervised release and not special parole. And Why couldn't I say that term has no meaning until the other statute takes effect? And since it doesn't have any meaning, I'll assume it seem, means the same thing as, as parole, special parole. Well, Your Honor, once again, while it's true that the definitional provision uh, that gives meaning to supervised release or tells us what Congress meant by supervised release isn't in force, it still does exist. I mean, it is there for guidance. And it's a, li- it's a little bit like the situation that would obtain if Congress had never enacted 3583, the definitional provision, but simply had explained uh, in a House report or something what it meant by that. Um, I mean, it's, there is information out there. It's not as if we have nothing. And judges have not acted as if we have nothing. That, that's the other point. Uh, it, it seems to me you're, you're, you're presenting the case, as, as, as you ought to, I suppose, uh, you know, on the, on the assumption it's our function to figure out what Congress intended. I don't think there were more than 20 people who uh, uh, adverted to this, uh, this refinement, uh, this uh, scrivener's change from special parole to, uh, to the new terminology. Uh, Seems to me our job is to make sense out of, as best we can, out of a statute that it's, it's, it's a, you know, Chinese puzzle. We're trying to fit it together. And a very sensible way to fit it all together that, uh, that doesn't produce any inconsistencies anyway is to, uh, as we've sometimes done, not, uh, not deem the effective date to be immediate. It's a, it's a sensible solution of, for someone whose job is to try to make sense out of the law. It does make sense out of it, doesn't it? Your Honor, we think not because of what Congress did when it passed the statute. It passed a statute that in all its incarnations, in all its versions, provided for a mandatory term of post-confinement monitoring of some form. There was never a version of this statute that didn't provide for mandatory monitoring. The statute was designed to up the penalties that, that had existed, to plug gaps that were perceived in the previous law, to, to, uh, to compensate for the inadequacies of previous law, and it just, it just doesn't make sense 
to say that having gone to all this trouble, they really meant to let whole, all or part of the statute lie fallow for a year. It's simply perverse to solve the problem by delaying the effective date, especially since, as you suggest, Another way to solve the problem, which is equally good and avoids the problems I just talked about, is just to scratch out the change and put another word in its place. But, you know, both are equally intrusive, both are equally activist. And it's our view that the, least, the, the solution that does the least violence to what Congress wrote and what it did is simply to allow judges to turn to the appropriate page in the United States Code and read off the penalty and pass sentence using that penalty. There, there really is no practical or legal obstacle to doing that. This is not a case where a judge sits down and is completely stymied by what he sees in front of him. And once again, judges have been doing it, they are doing it. Um, Ms. Weiss, will you, I, I should know this, but what sentence did this man get? Um, what, what, assume you win, what, how long will he be in prison? Um, he's going to be in prison for 15 years, I 15 believe. 15 years plus a ten, uh, four or five oh, years. Well, um, petitioner is correct that the mandatory good time provisions under Section 4163 and 4164 will apply to him, so he'll have some time deducted from his mandatory term of imprisonment. Um, if it's good so, time. If it's good. If it's, right, if it's good time. Yeah. But he'll be in prison for um, at least 10 years, that's my understanding. I see. Yeah. So it, it will be at least 10 years before uh, he'll actually be out and um, be supervised. Um, uh, my the point, one more point I want to make about this question of delaying the supervised release uh, penalty which, of course, would mean that petitioner would get nothing. Um, it's important to note that the conflict in the courts below uh, has not really been about whether uh, individuals who are to commit their offenses during this period get nothing or get supervised release. Almost virtually every court that's wrestled with this problem has ruled that, uh, or the result of every decision has been that these offenders get something, either supervised release or special parole. But petitioner is asking to be let, uh, to get nothing. And although the courts below have come out in different ways and they've said different things and some have concluded that the 86 Act is delayed and some have concluded that they're not, there's virtually unanimous agreement that it simply would not comport with what Congress did when it passed this Act and what Congress intended to open up, uh, uh, to create this opening for individuals committing these offenses. Um, the second point about delaying supervised release is that it really can't be squared with the text and structure of the 841 penalty revisions. If you actually look at Section 1002 and the changes that it made to Section 841 to the penalties, you'll see that the terms of imprisonment, the fines, and the post-confinement monitoring supervised release requirements are all put together in one paragraph. They're, they're part of, of the same, uh, they're part of an organic whole. They're meant to function together. 
What Petitioner is saying is that we're going to apply these statutes piecemeal. We're going to use the mandatory prison sentence from 1986 Act. We're going to go back, I suppose, to the 1984 Act and use whatever uh, post-confinement monitoring requirement there is in the 1984 Act. We're going to slap together this patchwork, which creates its own set of anomalies and contradictions, especially for cocaine offenses. And in fact, if, if you sit down and look at how it works to use part of the 84 Act and part of the 86 Act, you come up with blatant contradictions. And that's apparent if you look at the um, cocaine offenses, uh, which the, the result of slapping together these two acts would be that more serious cocaine offenses would get a less harsh sentence than less serious cocaine offenses. And I won't bore the court with the details of explaining that, but that is the result of this patchwork solution. This has been exciting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's important to us, Justice Scalia. Um, in sum, we believe that the plain language of this statute should be applied, that this court should respect the, the unimpeachable and vital legislative principle that statutes go into effect immediately unless Congress says otherwise and uphold the judgment of the Court of Appeals in this case. can't help but enjoy the difference between an axiom, a rule, and a vital legislative principle. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ms. Wax. And Mr. Goldberger, do you have rebuttal? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. We are not asking in this case for a delay in the implementation of supervised release. The government is asking for an acceleration of the effective date of supervised release by more than an entire year ahead of the date that Congress decided it would take for the system to gear up and be ready to implement this entirely new form of sentencing. The there is an, an anomaly created by your proposal, which is that your, your client would get nothing, neither, neither special parole nor, nor supervised release. Well, he hardly gets nothing. He gets nothing in addition to so 10 years in prison and 10 years of post-incarceration supervision. Because, and precisely because, he's a, a pre-November 1, 87 offender. He receives both mandatory release supervision by virtue of the good time laws, which go out of effect for post-November 1, 87 cases, and he receives parole on his conspiracy sentence for 10 years, which wouldn't exist had it been a post-November 87 Sentence. So the, the anomaly that the government uh, offers really doesn't exist. In fact, it cuts in our favor by showing the rationality of, of or let's say, the, the lack of irrationality, I think is more fair, yes, of saying that Congress was willing to tolerate a year's delay in the reinstitution of extra supervision for this small category of offenders to avoid upsetting a very complicated transition uh, to a whole new sentencing system. It's true that there's never been a case in this court resolving a controversy uh, about an effective date um, by finding that it was delayed. That's because in 200 and more years there's never been a case in this court resolving a controversy about an effective date. So that doesn't tell us anything. And it's certainly not true that the courts of appeals have never found a delayed effective date. The majority of the courts of appeals in the cases underlying the conflict that you're here to resolve uh, now have ruled in our favor by finding um, that there was a delay. And 
This is because the reason the majority of the circuits have gone this way is because that it is not fair to say that there are just a few little problems created by an immediate effective date. There are <laughs> massive and irreconcilable problems in interpreting this and other um, drug sentencing statutes. The problems are irreconcilable. Does the, does the legislative history show any, give any reason for the substitution of Special uh, release. There is, uh, there's absolutely no legislative history explaining this precise change. It occurred after a bill can saying special parole had passed both houses. The change occurred only in the reconciliation process. Well, what if the, uh, we don't know by whom or why. What if the uh, what if the statute hadn't been a, or, or the bill hadn't been amended in that way and it retained the special parole uh, a provision? I don't think there would have been sufficient argument against the presumption of, 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 immediate, of immediate effectiveness. That's right. That's and right. It's, it's, by just the, it's, just a, it's just this un, this new term being included in the statute, which seems to be tied to the, to the uh, statute that becomes effective in 87 that gives you this argument? This and all of those other contradictions where certain other provisions in the 845 series of drug statutes incorporate by reference and, and refer to sections of 841B, the basic drug sentencing law, and say, and this person shall receive twice the term of special parole as someone sentenced under 841B, and here's Congress said there is no special parole under 841B, it's something else. So it's, it's both the contradictions and the perimateria use of a term defined elsewhere. Would all of those be, be eliminated? Suppose we, we just interpreted this to, to be a scrivener's error and to be uh, special parole instead. Would that eliminate? Uh, it absolutely would eliminate it, but we agree with the government that that is the first impermissible answer to the problem. Right. And that's because it's the only one that's directly contrary to the language deliberately chosen by Congress. Deliberately chosen by Well, we know that Congress changed the words ter special parole term to the words term of supervised release. And we know that that didn't happen by computer error. We know that it happened by human act. Now, it may have happened by human error. But it happened by human action, and it was then voted on in those terms by both houses. And when Congress has voted for certain words which it knows or ought to know are different from other words, then uh, that is, uh, it would be a deviation from the judicial function to solve the problem by rewriting the statute. Thank you, Mr. Goldberger. The case is submitted.